Well, well, that's why you're going to hell when you die. So we'll just skip over that part right now. Um, but but I think it's important. I think it's important. I'll be for really. for you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. They have a suite reserved for me. Um, it's got wings written all over it. <laughs> yes, it does. Hey, everybody. What's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another bonus episode of Half Forgotten History Season 3. And I got to tell you, a lot more coming, and we'll get to that a little bit after this episode. But this episode is special to me because it's with my dad. My father, Hal Wingo, left his family behind to try and become a journalist in New York City in the late 50s, early 60s, parlayed that into a reporting job for Life magazine, uh, then became the bureau chief for the Vietnam War, where we lived overseas for a few years, then came back and then founded this magazine you may have heard of called People Magazine. His history is almost half forgotten and it needs to be heard. His stories are incredible and the people he hung out with are absolutely amazing. So allow me this uh, little personal moment here and I think you'll enjoy it. A half forgotten history episode with my father, Hal Wingo. Well, first of all, way to bring it with the shirt. Like I feel like a schmuck now. I just got a blue linen shirt and you look like you just got back from Las Vegas with Morgan Freeman and Kevin Klein and uh, Michael Douglas. Oh, you. Oh, you. <laughs> Always with <laughs> words. <laughs> so, so just so people, well, so just so people will be understanding, why are you having your dad on your podcast? When I asked you to do this podcast, where were you? When I said, hey, would you do this podcast, where were you? Rancho Mirage, California. Right. But what, what were you attending? Oh, I was at Gavin McLeod's funeral. The yeah, love so just so, guy. And, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So just so people understand, when I asked my dad if he would join the Half Forgotten History podcast, he was at the funeral of Captain Steubing from The Love Boat, Gavin McLeod, and it was also at the Mary Tyler Moore show as Murray. Right. My point being, my dad has led a very interesting life, and I think people need to understand uh, what the things that he's accomplished, and I think they're important. So we'll skip through a bunch of crap. You were born, you were, you, you went through teenage years, puberty, marriage, fun stuff, blah, school. Uh, so then you graduate from Baylor university and you want to be a journalist and you go back to your hometown newspaper working for the San Antonio light, correct? Right. Okay. But at that point, and we're talking in the late fifties, early sixties, right. the journalism, journalism capital of the world was where? New York, New York. So you made a decision you wanted to try and get to New York, right? I did. I decided that as after I graduated from the uh, School of Journalism, I took a master's degree in politics and journalism. I figured this was my one shot to go for New York and just see what happens. And uh, I put nearly everything Paul and I own in a 57 Ford we had. And Paula went home with Nancy. You were not yet in our presence. And I drove to New York City leaving a drop of oil all the way from Columbia to New York because I was burning up the motor. <laughs> I had to stop every hundred miles and add a quart of oil. It got so bad when I got to South Bend, Indiana, that I had to pull into an all-night mechanic and said, just please keep this car going until I can get to Manhattan. He said, I'll, I'll try. And I don't know what he did, but I got there still dripping oil all the way. That's my so house in Gretel. Okay, your trail of oil from Columbia, Missouri to Manhattan. So you, you left my sister and my mother, and you went up and got a room at the YMCA in New York City, right? 34th Street YMCA, not the, okay. the dodgy end of Manhattan. Yeah. And uh, well, for $2 a night, 
Yeah. I had a very limited budget. I had just enough money to last maybe three weeks if I ate every meal I had at the uh, chock full of nuts. But mm. I did have letters of introduction from a wonderful editor who had spent 25 years in New York and then was teaching at the University of Missouri. So I fortunately was able to get some really good interviews, none of which turned into jobs because at that time there was a newspaper strike going on in New York City. And I think at that time there were 10 or 11 daily papers in Manhattan in New York. And all those people who were out of work had gone to be absorbed by everybody else who was hiring. So it was not the best of times to be looking. But nonetheless, one very cold day I saw I was walking down 6th Avenue and I looked up and saw this sign that said, Time and Life Building. I thought, what have I got to lose? I'm about to run out of shoe leather and money, so I think I'll just go in here. I did have the name of one man who was a senior editor at Time, Marshall Loeb. So I went into the reception center, which at that time covered one full width of the building from 50th to 51st Street. It was huge and it was intimidating. But I walked up to this bank of receptionists on one side and I said, uh, I'd like to know if it'd be possible to speak to Mr. Lowe. She said, well, let me call upstairs. She said, no, I'm sorry, he's not here. So I said, thank you very much. And I turned around to walk out of that reception center. And if I had, I'm sure I never would have walked back in. And I heard a voice call to me and said, wait, come back over here. And I turned around and I saw other people were looking at me and I thought, oh, now what? And I walked back and she said, did you come here to ask about a job? I said, well, I wasn't going to talk to Mr. Loeb about it since he had also been to the University of Missouri from which I just graduated. She said, go over there and pick up that phone. And she connected me to the personnel department. They said, you can come off and fill out an application, although we don't have any jobs available at the moment. I did fill out the application. I did get a call from another publication, True Magazine, a man named Doug Kennedy, who was the editor. A few days later, he offered me a job as associate editor. Just at the same time, I got a call from the Timing Personnel Department. They said, we can offer you a job, but it's just on the company newsletter for employees if you're interested. So I thought, let's see, Timing, True, Timing, True. How many of you go with Timing? So yeah. I took the job. And the point of this story is that it's one of the great shames of my life that I never went back and found out who that woman was who changed the course of my life by telling yeah. me to go over and pick up that phone. Well, well, that's why you're going to hell when you die. So we'll, we'll just skip over that part right now. Um, but, but I think it's important. I think it's important. I'll be waiting for you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. They have a sweet reserve for me. Um, it's got wings written all over it. <laughs> yes, it does. And all the liquor you can drink. But that's a separate issue. But I think it's important for people to understand that woman changed your life, right? She, she just did. if 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 she didn't say come back, you can't say for sure you would have even stayed in New York and gotten a job. I'm not sure I would have come back. I would have probably gone with the job at True Magazine, which would have been fine, yeah. and it would have been called associate editor and that sort of thing. But when I called Doug Kennedy at True and told him that I'm as much as I appreciated his offer, I'm taking an offer from Time Inc. and he said, if I were you, I'd do the exact same thing. <laughs> wow, that was so that. Yeah. So you weren't and you weren't on that in-house publication long, right? You parlayed that into a reporter's job. I was there four days <laughs> before I got a call from Life magazine saying we've got a we've got an opening and we can offer you this job at Life. I couldn't get down from the FYI office fast enough to say yes and thank you. And that's so, so how let I started get, so let me get this straight. Like, that's incredible. You, 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 this one woman changed your entire life. You were on this yeah. job for all of four days, right. four days. And then you got a job as a reporter for Life Magazine. Right. 
And the first thing I did when I got there was they said, really, we're going to need you in our uh, Miami bureau to work for a while because we're going to uh, need some extra help down there. And they sent me immediately to Miami and I got my first break there. And the first sports story I worked on was Wynn, the pitcher. What was his first name? Something Wynn. Early Wynn. Game. Early, Early Wynn. Yeah. Yeah. Covered a little thing where he was at spring training and all that sort of thing. So I swear I got my feet wet in Miami. Ha ha. And um, yeah. I was That's there about six joke. weeks before turning to New York. Yeah. And then how long were you in New York before they shipped you out to L.A.? Well, by the way, side note, I was born in New York and then that was wonderful. But then how I'm, how quickly did they ship you out to L.A.? Well, this all started in about early February of 1963. And we yeah. stayed until almost the summer of 1964. Of course, 1963 was a very, very big and important year. And one of the most important experiences in my life was my involvement in covering the assassination of John Kennedy. Right. And so just so people know, back before there was an internet and TV taking over the world, Life magazine got the Zapruder film, the Abraham Zapruder film, who was a tailor in Dallas who had an eight millimeter filming of the assassination of JFK. And every news organization in the world wanted that video. Yet you and your dear friend, Dick Solly, who just passed away a few weeks ago, were able to secure that video. No, 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 no. I did not secure the film. Dick did. I was in Washington the whole time covering events of the funeral and all of that sort of thing. Dick gets all the credit in the world for getting that film. All right. So tell tell that story. Tell that story. Dick was called by New York and said, get to Dallas as fast as you can. So he grabbed two photographers in the bureau in L.A. where he was stationed, ran out to the airport. So many people were trying to get on planes to Dallas that they literally let people stand on the flight all the way to Dallas. Can you imagine that? Because they couldn't give them a seat. They knew they had to get to Dallas. Anyway, when they got there, we had a stringer, part-time correspondent in Dallas. He said, I heard that a man who was a clothing manufacturer here, I believe his name started with a Z. It sounded something like Zaprat, Zapru, whatever. Dick went to the telephone book and went down to the Z's and there was only one. Abraham Zapruder. He started calling and called on for about five or six hours and it was busy all the time. He never got off the phone. He kept calling. He kept calling. Finally, Mr. Zapruder, about eight o'clock that night, answered the phone. Dick identified himself and he said, I can't talk to you tonight. I'm distraught. I'm determined. I've, I've got a rest. I don't know what I'm doing. But Dick said, you do have this film. He said, yes, I've had it processed. He said, can I see it? And he said, not tonight. He said, come in the morning at nine o'clock. Dick got there at eight. And by the time Dick got inside and was talking to Mr. Zapruder about the film, there were 15 or 20 photographers and reporters banging on his front door saying, let us in. You can't do this. You have to give this to everybody. You got no right. You've got to let us in. Mr. Zapruder calmly heard Dick out and on his assurance that life would never in any way exploit the film because he felt so devastated by all of this. He agreed to give life first publication rights. Now we have to pause here for just a minute. Try to imagine, which there will never be again, a world in which a major event occurred and only one person got a picture of it. Yeah. Every human with an iPhone would have been a photographer on the scene. Never again would that be anything like what happened that day in Dallas. In terms no, of abs- 
Absolutely incredible. And again, Dick passed away recently. We'll get back to Dick a little bit later because there's another connection that you and I and a lot of people in the world have uh, regarding Dick Stolle. We'll get to that in a second. But but I want to go into some more things that you did at life as well. Um, let's start with your trip to Alaska. Okay. Now, this was after I had transferred from New York to Los Angeles. They call the right. Beverly Hills Bureau Bev Edit. And uh, yeah. At that time, you were with us, Trey. You were about nine months old when we got there. I so, so life was better. But go I know on. you can remember all of this. But <laughs> one day, life decided that in its grand manner, as it did about many things, it's time to do a special issue on the two newest states in the Union, Alaska and Hawaii. I was assigned to spend six weeks in Alaska with a wonderful photographer named Rudy Crane. He had a funny, funny laugh, and everybody called him the whooping crane because when he laughed, he'd go, (gasps) and he and I just roamed Alaska for six weeks, taking pictures and talking to people about that fascinating and amazing state. Now, before we go go any further, just so people understand, you talked what you just sort of explained how, you know, there's a Pruder film today. The idea that one person had it is incredible. For people that are working in this industry and are listening to this, the idea that Life Magazine would just say to you and a photographer, hey, go spend six weeks in Alaska and come back with something. Like, it doesn't work that way anymore. It, it, it was a well, remarkable life thing. Was. That's the way life did things. They would, they would spend yeah. a fortune just pursuing ideas, not many of which wouldn't pan out. But in yeah. this case, they knew it would. It's a new state, and, and Rudy was going to take great pictures, and we were going to hear from lots of good people. One picture that Rudy wanted very much to take was a shot at a pulp mill in little town of Ketchikan, (laughs) which if you looked at it, you'd see this rather impressive edifice with about three or four stacks for smoke to come out the top of and looked like a lake in front of it where all these logs were just sitting in the water. And Rudy realized that you couldn't get both of those things in the same photograph because by night you wouldn't see the logs. By day, you wouldn't see the flumes coming up out of the smokestack. So he had this brilliant idea to mount a four by five speed graphic camera on the edge of the water and take four or five frames of four by five film, which we would then come back after dark and double expose. So you would see the logs in the water and the white flumes coming out at night. On the way down to the water's edge, we passed a, old prospector's cabin. He was sitting out on his porch. So we told him what we were up to and that we were leaving a camera down there right at the edge of the water mounted. that could not be moved because it would ruin what we were trying to do. And he said, okay. I said, we said, we'll be back after dark. We came back several hours later, walking down this trail, passed by his cabin and heard him say, did you boys figure the tide? (laughs) What? The tide? We thought we had photographed this from the edge of a lake, and it was the Pacific Ocean, an inlet of the oh. Pacific Ocean. That camera was four feet underwater. And he said, you told me not to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> so the shot was ruined because the camera yeah, was underwater. Say, well, that <laughs> okay. You also, I, I've seen a picture of you when you're about to get in. I wonder if, that's, if it's the same photographer in one of those canoes that the Inuits uh, were in. Yeah. And we and. You were in that canoe, like, and they were not, I mean, they served their purpose, but they certainly wouldn't be deemed uh, high craft or high, high sea warning worthy. They were, they were pretty thin canoes. 
animal skin over wooden hulls that we were out on for eight hours looking for walruses. For the Indians who lived on that island, that was food. That was something they needed to search for. We never found them. We found a few seals, and they did kill them and toss them up on an ice floe and turn the whole ice floe red with blood. But uh, we, I thought I was either going to freeze to death or drown because when we got in the uh, craft, the little canoe, the uh, lead man said, please step only on the wood part because if you step on the canvas skin, we'll be all be dead in about 20 seconds. So water was so cold. <laughs> Uh, That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. Tell the story. Yeah. All right. So that's a great story. And then there's another great story, which was very unfortunate um, for people that might have been fans of the movie Mississippi Burning about the killing of the three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi. You were assigned to go cover that story for Life Magazine. I was still in uh, Los Angeles. They called me from Los Angeles. This was after this. 18 men had been charged and arrested with the murder of three civil rights workers in Philadelphia. The movie, which everybody may or may not remember, starring Gene Hackman, was a terrific story of how he tracked down and put pressure on one person to turn on all the other people who were involved. And that story did a great job of explaining what life was like in that part of the country at that time. The story was that those three young men, two from New York and an African-American student from Mississippi, James Cheney, were going around to black communities trying to encourage those people to register to vote. That was their crime. They were picked up by the deputy uh, sheriff, taken to prison where they stayed for three or four hours and then were allowed to be released. Only they didn't know it. It was to be released to their death. They were followed out of town ordered off a road out near an earthen dam, stepped out of the car and was shot dead, buried in an earthen dam. When life found out that these 18 men had been uh, arraigned and charged, they called me in Los Angeles and said, well, you can talk south to those people. Go down there and see what you can find out about who these people were. Now, do I have yeah. a southern accent? I don't think so. Well, you're from Texas. Texas isn't really the south. It's this entire okay. different Whatever thing. Was, that's a separate issue. Yeah. Right. They said, there's one person you might turn to. Go to, go to the courthouse. Go up to the Justice of the Peace office on the second floor and tell him what you're there for. So I drive from Meridian, where I had rented a room, rented a car, about 30 miles north to Philadelphia, pulled around the courthouse and parked on the south side. In all the courthouses in small countries, states, and towns, it's a whole block that it occupies, a large building, and you can park on all four sides. I parked around on the south side. Went in up to the second floor, saw the sign Justice of the Peace, walked in the door and said, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Hal Wingo from Life. Uh, he says, let me stop you right there. Son, you turn around, you walk out of this office, go down those steps, get in your car, leave this town and don't ever come back. Well, so much for the help from the Justice of the Peace. Yeah. He <laughs> threatened you, basically. Well, he told me to get out of town if I wanted, and I, you know, it's a place where three guys had been killed not too long before. Yeah. I went out yeah. and got in my car, went around the block and got to the north side of the building. And as I did, I looked back at the steps of the courthouse and realized that that justice of the peace had followed me down the steps, come around to the north side of the entrance and was pointing out my car to four men standing there on the steps of the 
courthouse. Well, there was nothing for me to do but to go back to Meridian and change cars, which I did, and then came back <laughs> in a different car. We kept working on this story until we finally got part of what we wanted to tell. But I, I've told many times that I never felt more threatened for my own safety in three years in Vietnam than I did one day in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Well, I mean, the, the point I, I, why I wanted to bring that story up is, you know, yeah. you, you didn't even think twice about it. You're like, I'm just going to get another car and I'll come back and do my damn job. And I think if I called New York and said, I, that guy told me not to leave and I don't think I'm going to go back. They said, well, you can pack up and go home. too. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't. You're out of here. They, they expected I would at least make that much of an effort. Well, it was pretty cool. And obviously, that's a very significant moment in the country's history. Um, you mentioned Vietnam. We'll, we'll get there in one second. But before that, you also did some very other interesting stuff when you were in L.A. You covered the first Super Bowl. You know, they didn't even call it the Super Bowl. They called it the championship game between yeah. two leagues. AFL, AFL, NFL World Championship game. Yeah. And when I think about that game and think about going with you to later Super Bowls, to big events with the Cowboys, I just have yeah. to laugh out loud. They couldn't give tickets away to that first game. And they yeah. didn't begin to have a big crowd in that stadium. And in fact, I was thinking about this, and the only person that I even talked to was a man named Dan Devine, who was at that time, I think, coach in, in Missouri. And yep. more fans in the in the stadium that day were interested in talking to Dan Devine than they were even in watching the game because there was a nothing event. Two television networks covered that first Super Bowl. So the point being, you've had a bunch of different things go on in your career. Now, you mentioned Vietnam. Yes, you uh, you ended up being the bureau chief for Life Magazine for the Vietnam War, and we moved to Hong Kong, and we lived in Hong Kong for three years. And here are the the, the memories that I have for you know purposes of understanding. I was nursery school, kindergarten, first grade. Those were the three years when I was in Vietnam. All I remember is the school, our apartment, and I did remember this. You would you would go into the bush like you would literally go into the bush and report on what was going on in Vietnam. And I remember uh, whenever you left, mom would be very upset. And I was just like, well, he's just going to do his job. He's coming back. I didn't realize the danger that you were in by being in a war zone, basically. And we didn't have cell phones. You know, there weren't satellites everywhere. So you would just go and you were expected back in a couple of weeks and either you came back or you didn't. And as you say, we didn't have we couldn't send Internet conversations with each other. We didn't call on the telephone. It was simply by transferring letters back and forth to people going from Saigon to Hong Kong and back and forth. Do you remember, Trey, the time Paula saw you walking down the hall in our apartment with a little bag in your hand and a wooden gun rifle over your shoulder? And she, she said, what are you doing, Trey? And you said, well, I'm going to go down to Vietnam and help dad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have been no help. Uh, I, 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 here's what I do remember about that, though. I remember at that time I was very into, you know, like little war figures, like most kids, most young boys were. And I was playing with them in my room and, and you would, I think you'd just come back from the bush and you were trying to tell me like, that's fine, but this really isn't a game when you're talking about war because you had seen the devastation right, right. of it up, up, up close. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And we should also point out that at one point, uh, there's a there's a there's a photograph that I have. It, where you, it's from your office. It's of you, your friend John Sarr, and your photographer friend whose name escapes me. Larry Burroughs. Larry Burroughs. And there were you're all in your fatigues. Yeah. 
Yeah. He went down in a helicopter over Laos about six months right. after I left Hong Kong. His, the remains of that whole crew on that plane were never found. The point I'm making here is there was a lot of danger that you guys faced every time you went into the bush. Well, yes, yes. 56,000 Americans your... lost their lives in Vietnam. Yeah. And their names were on what, that wall in Washington. Yeah. What are your recollections of those trips? Like, what stood okay. out to you the most? I think the thing that probably got to me the most was recounting and talking to people who had survived the worst massacre that was known about Vietnam, which is in a little village of My Lai. They call it a hamlet of My Lai. It was very, very small. But what happened there at the hands of United States Army forces under a lieutenant named Rusty Calley was that this little hamlet was suspect of housing, giving safe passage to members of the Viet Cong. Well, there's nothing unusual about that. The Viet Cong had friends and family in every town in Vietnam. We were always the outliers there, not the Viet Cong. But um, when they went in that day, for some reason, they were going to take revenge on some soldiers who had been attacked earlier from that area, not necessarily from that hamlet. They killed 400 men, women, and children. Animals burned every hut and went back to their duties and uh, where they were stationed. That story would never have been known if a guy named Ron Reidenauer, who at that time was in the army over there, later became a correspondent and worked for us in New Orleans, insisted that this information had to be given to the government. They never responded to every letter he wrote. So he finally contacted Seymour Hirsch at the New York Times, and Seymour Hirsch broke the story. That came out in December of... Uh, 86, November of 86, December of 86, yeah. I flew to Milai to try to see if there was any sign of life there or people coming back there. And I took with me a woman named Germaine Locke, who was a Vietnamese a translator for our office. And if she hadn't gone with me, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere because once the, they saw the sight of anybody looking anything like a Occidental, as they called all of us, they would not have spoken to me. But through her... Yeah. We got the story of what these people saw and what they survived and, and how, uh, well, it was beyond description in terms of what they witnessed. But that was a way of saying, this is how far we have sunk in this war in the way yeah. we treat other human beings. It was totally yeah. unbelievable. How, how ready were you to leave when, when the assignment was up and we moved back to the States? Oh, I was ready. I was ready, yeah. yeah. I, I, so, I was not one of the correspondents who was totally gung-ho on telling this story every day. It just, it didn't resonate yeah. with me like that. And so after yeah. three years, we came back to New York and, and I was not at all unhappy to uh, put that part of it behind me. So that, that leads us to the next thing, which is fascinating because at that point, Life Magazine, you know, Life was a picture magazine as we were alluding to. And, you know, it was a picture magazine. Well, what killed picture magazines? Television. So in 1973, Life folded. And 72, you, the end of 72, 72, I'm sorry, the end of 72, uh, yeah. which incidentally, Dick Stolle was, was editing that particular week. And it, the cover was nothing but the names of people and places and events and so forth. But right down under the date of the magazine, he snuck in the little word goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't even tell the, the bosses or they might not let him do it. But anyway, that was the last of life. 
Dick yeah, and so I. So life folded. Born, yeah. Life folded. That was the end of seventy two. Yeah. In nineteen seventy three, Dick and I and about three or four other people joined a little group at the time Inc. called Magazine Development, trying to find a way to prove that Time Inc. still knew a thing or two about producing a weekly magazine. That was really important yeah. because the loss of life in that sense was a huge embarrassment. We were all working on various different projects when Dick got a memo one morning from Andrew High School, who was the chairman of the board at Time Inc. He was married to Miriam Salzberger High School. She had been the widow of a man named Dreyfus, who was the publisher of the New York Times. They were coming home yeah. from a dinner party one night, and Miriam turned to Andrew and said, you know, everybody likes the People page in People. That could be the nucleus of an idea to expand that thing, to just talk about the lives of people. The next morning, Andrew, who was no dummy, got on the phone after listening to his wife and told Dick, I think this is what you need to look into. We dropped everything else we were doing. And within a couple of weeks, we had put together what is known as a dummy, just blank pages, but we created a cover image and put in it photographs that were already available from photo services and agencies with no effort on our part and sent it up to the 34th floor, which was corporate heaven where all the big decisions were made. They said, well, that looked pretty good. Try it again. We did it again. They said, that looked pretty good. Try it again. After three weeks of this, they said, print one of these suckers. So we did and sold it in 10 market areas around the United States, chosen for purely demographic reasons. And it just walked off the stands. So it seemed to us that just like many of other Time Inc. magazines that were born out of a generic idea, Time, Live, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, we had come up on something. And to Dick's credit, I will give him all the credit in the world. He was the best idea man I ever knew for finding stories. And we lost people on March 4th, my birthday, 1974. So you and Dick and uh, Cran Jones and... uh couple others. You, you guys started Bergheim. the most successful magazine. Dick Bergheim. You guys started the most successful magazine launch in the history of magazines. When people last week printed a two-page tribute to Dick, which was yeah. appropriate, and, and I'm glad they did. At one point, they went on to say he created the magazine, which today has a following of 100 million people. That's stunning. There you go. Now, that, of course, yeah. includes all the Internet, social media, other ways in which you sure. can now find information. But the idea of people ever reaching 100 million took my breath away. We were lucky well, to it, make our rate base, which was a million copies every week. You did it. I mean, no, nobody's launching magazines anymore. So you, you've retired the award. Congratulations. You go down as the <laughs> one of the founding editors of the greatest magazine launch in the history of, of that industry. So before we get into some other fun stuff real quick, we have to tell my favorite story about you oh. and your travels. And it's the Charles Lindbergh story. Okay. Um, okay. For those, for those that don't know, Charles Lindbergh was the first man to fly across the Atlantic ocean. Uh, and at one point was the most famous person on the planet or definitely the most famous person in America. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's no, I don't think there's much argument about that. And then his son was kidnapped and perished, and that became the crime of the century. But later in life, he developed a real uh, appetite for indigenous cultures. Native and, populations. Yeah, native populations. And, and life sent you to go hang out with Charles Lindbergh, right? And you met up at this tiny no, airport no, where? That's not quite right. That's not quite right. Mm-hmm. I only went down to the Philippines. Straighten me out, old man. I'm, I'm going to get you straight yet. 
I went down there to look into a story on a man named Manuel Elizalda, who was the rich son of a very prominent family in Manila, who had turned his back on all of that to work with the native Filipinos who were at that time believed to be the most primitive humans left on earth. Mm-hmm. And that was his that was his work. He was trying to defend them from developers who were going to destroy the forest and they'd have no place to live and all that kind of thing. So I made a deal to go down and talk to him. I flew from Hong Kong to Manila, Manila to Menendao, took a charter Piper Cub over to this little clearing in the forest to meet Manuel Elizalda. And when I got there, he said, uh, I'm very glad to have you here. There's somebody else here who's been very interested in our work for quite some time. I would like for you to meet Charles Lindbergh. My jaw just about dropped to the ground. I don't think I could remember Manuel Elizalda's name after I heard the name Charles Lindbergh. Right. I was that stunned to be in his presence. Anyway, uh, that evening when it was time for sleeping, there was just one big tabernacle type place that served as the office, the dining hall and everything else. And then a few little cabins on stilts about eight feet off the ground. And as we walked along, uh, Emmanuel said, now you and Mr. Lindbergh will share this little hut right here. So we walked up these steps, went inside, and we got there. I looked in the room, and there was one single army cot on one side of the room and a roll-up sleeper thing on the other. But I did say to him, oh, well, this is perfect. You take the bed, and I'll sleep on the floor. He said, no, 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 you take the bed. I'll sleep on the floor. I said, are you kidding I'm not doing that. I'm on the floor and you're on the bed. He said, then we'll both sleep on the floor because I prefer to sleep on the floor. That shows you what a hardhead he was. So he slept on the floor. I slept in the bed. And when I woke in the morning, he was sitting on the floor shining my shoes. I said, what? He said, well, I shine my shoes every morning, don't you? Anyway, we, we got through that, jumped in a helicopter and flew out to this place where we were meeting these natives who came in out of the trees making strange sounds and noises. And they were so fascinated to see Lindbergh. They didn't know who he was, but he was a tall man with a great shock of white hair. They ran up and ran their hands through his hair. They gave us gifts. They gave me a beautifully sheathed carved knife. Right. And we thought we were the civilized ones. They came and made knives to us. Which leads us... Okay, that's very cool. But the point of the story here... You're just going to make me tell this, aren't you? It's the only, all the other crap I don't care about. Get to the good stuff. You're making me admit the most embarrassing thing I've ever done. Yes, I do that on a daily basis. We picked up by a little Piper Cub to fly back to Mindanao. The pilot landed on this little strip, and I kid you not, the writing on the side of the plane said the Spirit of St. Louis, which was the name of Lindbergh. He didn't know he was coming over there to pick up Charles Lindbergh. And he got right. so nervous and excited, I thought we'd have a wreck taken off from that little airstrip. But we got back to Mindanao. The airport right. was just tabernacles, big tin roof tabernacles. I said, I got to have something to eat that I recognize. You want to go? He said, no. While we wait for our plane, I'll sit here and take care of some correspondence. I always wait. Never waste time in airports. So yeah. I said, I'll be back in a while. About 30 minutes later, I came back and he wasn't there. I looked right where I had left him. Not a sign of him. I thought, oh, my word. He's taking an early plane. And I missed my shot. I walked around and walked around. I finally found him sitting in the shade in another area. And I walked up to him. You might, you want me to tell this, don't you? Well, I'm going to tell it if you're not going to tell it. What did I you say to Charles to Lindbergh? I walked up to him and said, well, I thought you'd been kidnapped and carried off. 
Like literally the one thing you can't say to Charles Lindbergh, whose son was kidnapped was, I thought you'd been kidnapped. Like did the thought Man. bubble were the word, were the words Man. like here and you were like, what did I say? We're coming out of my mouth. I wanted to die. I wanted the earth to just open up and swallow me whole. But what a gentleman. He just laughed. He said, no, no, no. I got out of the sun. I don't think I quit blushing for 24 hours, but, but that was yeah. it. And we flew back to Hong Kong together. And yeah. uh, five years later, he died. And yeah. when he was on his deathbed, he insisted on being flown back to, guess where, Maui, to die yep. and be buried. Yeah, absolutely. And right, right, right before that, and right before that, I believe he said, I can't believe that damn life reporter asked me if I was kidnapped. <laughs> By the way, I, I'm glad we got the 30-minute dissertation on the beds before we got to the Charles Lindbergh story. Boy, as an editor, you need some editing. All right, we're going to move this thing along here, Sparky. Um, oh, I'm what, you beginning read? with television or something here. We got to take go. our time for uh, Yeah, well, the internet is is for you know for a long time, but not this long. Um, so the the point I the point I want to get back to is you mentioned earlier when when the Cowboys were capable of winning Super Bowls, right? When that was that used to be a thing, just so people know, they had won five. But we went to all three together uh, in in the nineties: Super Bowl twenty seven, twenty eight, Super Bowl thirty. Uh, and I was the one that got us tickets. I felt like a big wig because you were in charge, and you know you would all this. I was able to secure these tickets. And here are my here are my recollections from those Super Bowls. The first okay. one was in was in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl, and we had great seats on the fifty yard line. And I, as we're sitting down, I see somebody walking past us, and I say, "Dad, check it out." It was Jack Nicholson. We had better seats than Jack Nicholson for Super Bowl twenty seven. I thought that was pretty cool. Super Bowl twenty eight was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we went to Atlanta, and we went to uh, Lee Steinberg. Every year has a big Super Bowl party. We went to Lee Steinberg's party. And we met Roger Staubach, uh, Hall of Fame quarterback from Dallas Cowboy, and his daughters were at the party. And I introduced you and, and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I told them that you were one of the founding editors of People Magazine. And they looked like they had just met Elvis or Madonna <laughs> or Michael Jackson. I was like, you know what your father does, right? He's a Hall of Fame. They could not have been more impressed with you that you were the uh, you were the managing editor, the news editor of People Magazine. Do you remember that? If you say so, he's killing, you're killing me right now. All right, here's here's what else. Right, here's what else I remember from that Super Bowl. Uh, we got you. I got you down underneath the stadium uh, after the game was over, where all the players were giving their interviews. Now, again, we're talking to my father who covered, you know, JFK's assassination, covered Lyndon Johnson when he was in the White House, went to the Vietnam War, Philadelphia rights, uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi rights workers killed, really heavy stuff. He knows how to handle himself in situations, right? Well, you are total fanboy now for the Dallas Cowboys. They've just won their second straight Super Bowl, 30 to 13. I'm down there with a credential and all these reporters are asking people questions. And Michael Irvin, God bless him, is on the podium holding audience, you know, just going off. I told you we would do it. And my dad yells out, that's right, Mike, you tell him. And my face went sheer white. I'm like, I'm going to get my credential yanked because my father, a seasoned journalist, doesn't know how to handle himself as a fanboy at a Super Bowl, and I'm screwed. Do you remember doing that? Yes. So the other thing which I thought about really cool about you, you – you retired relatively early. 
right? 62 was when you decided to hang them up, right? I took, it. I took the money and ran. Yeah, good for you. Um, <laughs> how would you compare your post-work life to your work life? Well, they're night and day. I was gone so much of the time, as you would know, when I was working. And uh, the life that I had after I retired was centered on our family. And it's been, I would have to say, on top of all these other things, by far the best years. Yeah, I I would agree. And and you taught me that. So that's something that matters to me. But I do want to say this. Um, You know, Dick's passing. um, Yeah made me think I wanted to have this conversation with you and people can understand what an amazing career you had. Um, you probably didn't know it at the time, but every teacher in service day, you know, when we didn't have class, I would go into the train with you in New York city and I'd yeah. ride the train from Greenwich to grand central. And I'd go to the, and you would make me your copy boy and you'd hand stuff off to me and they'd go down and give it to this guy over here and do all that kind of stuff. I didn't know it at the time. And maybe you did, did it on purpose. Maybe you didn't, but you were prepping me for what I was going to do the rest of my life. And I had no idea, but I thought that your job was so cool and it was so fun and interesting and different that I wanted to do something like that. So this is all your fault. You've done that, my son. You've done that. This is, this is is all your fault. Just so you know. (laughs) I do remember all of that. Yeah. And I love it. All right. Well, look, um, I just wanted to get this on record and I wanted people to see what an amazing career you've had because the things you were able to do in your career far outweighs anything I've done in my career. And the historical things that you've covered and done have been absolutely remarkable and people needed to know about it. Thank you. I love you. All right. Love you, Dad. So that's it for my dad. Great to talk to him. The shirt. I knew he'd wear something special. Always had a sense for fashion. But season four of Half Forgotten History is coming up very, very soon. We're very excited about it. Huge names already, active head coaches, Hall of Fame players, and a story from one player who pound for pound might have been the toughest guy in the league when he played about him wanting to take down a former teammate who was three times his size. And when I say take him down, I mean like way beyond MMA take him down. This thing was going to the mattresses, as they said in The Godfather. So season four of Half Forgotten History is going to be so great. We've got great sponsors and great guests. It's coming up real soon. So stay tuned. 